that whenever he was born as a baby, he was born to die. Like, just that perspective to hit over and over and over again. And then yesterday we were at um, Jensen's one-year birthday and seeing all the kids in their different stages of life and to know that our God took on flesh and did that, ran through fields, yelled, probably fished, like just all the like fully human, robed in frail humanity and going to die and knowing that that was it. He condescended, took on flesh. We are again in a very familiar passage. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to do the entire chapter because it's a story. You need all the pieces of the story. And then we're going to look at the major, like the cast of characters. Who are the, the major characters um, in this? And then what, what ultimately do we do with that? So, um, like, who are these magi? Who is this Herod? Who are these priests? What ultimately is the culmination of all of these things? And here's what Matthew chapter 2 says. I am in the ESV, and the, the title of all of this one for me that I was overwhelmed with over and over and over again was this is the coming of the king. Like this is our king and he's coming. And this is his story. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, so that was his son, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Y'all pray with me one more time, Lord. This before us, your word that you move men to write, that you have preserved for all time, Lord, we can have understanding because of your spirit that's within us. Lord, just help us not to grow so accustomed to what we think we know that we miss the glory of the gospel in this. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. Give us understanding. Amen. All right, so, so we're just going to kind of break it down, but I will tell you, in a story, not every piece needs to be broken down. I'm not going to lie. This was a fun moment. I heard a baby cry, and then I saw like two to three sets of parents go, was that the voice of mine? Because we know, right? And so I just, I love that moment. It may very well be yours, but it might not. All right, cast of characters, number one. We're not going to break the entire story apart. We're going to look at, at the big pieces of it. The wise men and the magi. Like the big question is, who are these guys? Do you ever think about it? Like who are the wise men or who are the magi? Like this is really, really important to the story. Okay, so I'm getting this from verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they're not the shepherds. By the way, if you read Luke's account, Luke talks about the shepherds that, were, that are in the field. The shepherds and the magi are two totally separate groups. Okay, so that may show up again later in the sermon if God says, yes, you can tell them that. If not, I'll tell you about the shepherd and magi later over Chile. Okay, but the word that is translated like for wise men is, is the same word that we use for magi. So depending on your translation, wise men and magi, they're the same and it referred to men who studied the stars. Like it was that term. And so they are associated with, with magic. It's not to, and then you, you're like, but in the Old Testament it says, don't do, okay, but you got to see what God's doing here. All right. But these are like astrologers, really. They know how to see the signs in the stars. They know how to understand that there is some deeper reality. And it's to them that God reveals himself. These guys are Gentiles. Like they are not followers of God. They are not Jews. These are Gentiles and they're magicians or they're magi. And this is what they do. They see the stars. They study astrology. They look for signs like this. And it's to this group of men that God reveals himself to these Gentiles that he says, here is my coming king. Like let that kind of just sink in. Okay, and then I'm going to kind of like, you know, if you put something in mud, it can kind of sink in on its own. But sometimes you just take your foot and you really push it in there. Okay, we're just going to kind of push in a little bit more on that. It's to this group of men. God does not reveal so plainly and clearly to all the Jews that the king has come. He chooses these Gentiles from the east and he draws them. And you need to know that from the beginning of Christ's life on earth, he was beginning to change the paradigm of who God's people could be. He drew the Gentiles to the birth of His Son. That's pretty major. You and I, if you don't remember what a Gentile is, we are the Gentiles. 
Like there was the Jewish nation and then there were the Gentiles. And God throughout the Old Testament, if you read over and over, He is for the Jews. He's about the Jews. He institutes the Jewish nation. He, he creates them. He cultivates them. He protects them. He promises. He covenants all these things with the Jews. And then whenever His Son is born, He begins to draw the Gentiles in. I just think that that it's to Gentiles that Jesus will eventually send the disciples in the Great Commission. It's to the Gentiles that Jesus also goes, but it's the Gentiles He also draws as He's a baby. But y'all, not only would the Gentiles be praising Jesus at the great and final eternal throne, they were worshiping Him at His incarnation when the King was born. That's amazing. I just rushed right past that, that from his very birth, he draws in these magi and he says, here is the king. And they know it's the king, right? We're going to look at that. Okay, let's go a little bit further. Verse 2, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Catch that? They see a star in the sky and they're drawn and they know that the king of the Jews has been born. So they probably have some understanding of what this might mean because the prophecies have been passed down over and over and over again. They said, for we saw his star when it rose, I love this, and have come to worship him. What did the Magi's want? They wanted to know where he was. The heavens revealed that a king has been born and we have come to worship him. That amazes me. These Gentiles look in the sky, they see the star. I know I'm hammering things over and over again that we're going to sing and know about in like two more months. I know, but, but they see the star and they have one desire to worship the king. You also need to know this because this is really important going into the Christmas season. We do not know how many magi there were, okay? We don't know how many shepherds there were. Whatever manger scene you have is potentially right or wrong, Okay? So we might get to that here in just a moment. But if you have one shepherd, well, I'm sorry, if you have two, two magi or two shepherd, that can be just as worshipful and right as six or three. Three just seems to be the tradition of the magi that they hold to based on the gifts. All right, so we don't know how many there were. You just need to know that. Now go to verse 9. This is interesting. After listening to the king in verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they, they go to Herod. And Herod ascertains, we're going to talk about Herod later. We're going to talk about those priests here in a moment. But they get some direction and they go. And whenever they go out, they see the star. And so they understand that the way to worship the king that we've been drawn to, it's right there. We keep following. And look, I love that. It says, i got to find it right here. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The star is there again. And I can't help. If you go back, do some Old Testament thinking real quick of the Israelites in the desert. They don't know where they're going, but they can look up and they see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They don't actually know where they're going except to the promised land and that it is wherever God takes them to be and God is always with them. And that's how this star functions for me. Like these magi don't know where they're going, but they see it rise in the sky. And as they see it rise in the sky, they know that God goes before them and he is drawing them to the king where they can worship. 
So this is all happening. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Y'all, church, exceeding joy. Like, their joyfulness should be the joyful normal of all Christians today. Like, as we come in here, I get it. Life is heavy. Life is weary. Like, we just get weighed down. But there should be exceeding joy. And whenever it's not there for us, it's because we've forgotten. But the king has been born. Like, he's been born, robed in frail humanity. The king has come. And then look at this. It says, and they fell down and worshipped him. These Gentile magi see the baby king and they worship. And you know why? Because they get it. They understood that in that cradle, everything had just changed. They grasp the magnitude of what they are witnessing. The king has been born. All of the prophecies now fulfilled and they're worshiping. Look at this. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Like, and these are symbolic. If you haven't heard this, many people believe that these are symbolic gifts. And I actually ascribe to that. Like, I think that it makes just total sense. But I also think it's as simple as this. They see that a king is born and what treasure they had, they give to the king. I think that's the first thing to know. What treasure they had, what they had in their possession to honor a king, they gave. This does remind us, just so you know, the, the, the most fitting way that we do this now is through our tithes and offerings. That idea of he is worthy, so we give. It's a gift of recognition to the king. But they didn't just fall down. Like they fell down and they gave their gifts. And here's some of the symbolism that, that many hold to, that the gold might represent his deity and his purity. Here is a king. Here is gold, this precious metal. Here is something worthwhile for a king. Frankincense, which is an incense, to be a fragrance of his life. And then we also know in 1 Corinthians that, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, God making his appeal through us. And that with that, that to some we're the aroma of life and to some we're the aroma of death. Christ is the aroma of eternal life. And so frankincense is that, that fragrance of his life. And myrrh for the sacrificial death that he will face because myrrh was actually used for embalming. I mean, great gift for a baby, right? Like here's your myrrh for your embalming. But, but these are their gifts. And because there's three gifts, that's why we usually say, well, each magi carried one gift. Here's, here's three magi, even though we don't really know. But I love that. They, did, they didn't just fall down. They brought out of their riches what treasures they had they gave to him. John MacArthur puts it this way, and I think it's what we see in the Magi. All of who we are, rightly responding to all of who He is, that is worship. All of who we are, rightly responding to all of who He is, that is worship. And I think that that's what we see in the Magi. All of who they are, seeing all of who He is, and rightly responding in that moment to bow down, to give of their gifts, to pursue Him, and to be willing to be drawn by Him. That is worship. Okay. Fun fact, real quick for your manger scenes. All right. The Magi in verse, you got to read this carefully. And if I come to your house, I'm not checking your manger scene. If I drive by and you have a manger scene up front, I'm not checking your theology. I'm just saying fun fact. Okay. 
in verse 11, it says, and going into the what? The house. The magi go into the house. The shepherds go find him um, in the manger. So if you read Luke, the shepherds find him in the manger because the shepherds were in the field. So if your manger scene has shepherds in the manger, that's great. If your manger scene on your mantle has magi with gifts in the manger, then somebody took you, okay? They got it wrong. I think it's all okay, though, for real. But I just thought this was one of those things where I'm going along and I'm like, wait a second, the magi are in the house. And I've, I've seen manger scenes so many times where there's all these gifts laid before him. And, and yes, there are shepherds, but then there's also the wise, yeah, the wise men are coming to the manger right there and they've got their gifts. I'm like, oh, and it's two separate groups. Okay, fun fact. Just wanted you to know. Now you can't say you didn't know. Cast of characters number two, King Herod. Y'all are good on Magi, right? They're these Gentiles who have been drawn in at the birth of Christ and they worship Him. Cast of characters number two, King Herod. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And I'm, I'm not a historian, and so I always have to go back because I slacked off in history all through high school and college and life. And so, like, really just, who is this Herod? Like, that's, I think, just really important for us to know. Because here's what other passages reveal. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem because that's where they're supposed to go. He said, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word that I too may come and worship him. So he seems great guy. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, by the Magi, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained by the wise men. And verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Here's what we know about Herod. He hated Jesus' very birth and sought to kill him. He did not desire ever to worship him. This was not like a, a change of heart in a sudden moment. He hated him from the beginning. Though he said he wanted to, to know where Jesus was, where this king was, so that he could worship him, he only sought his death from the very, very beginning. History tells us even more. Listen to this. It's a quote. Herod's infamous crimes were many. He put to death several of his own children and some of his wives whom he thought were plotting against him. Emperor Augustus reportedly said that it was better to be Herod's sow than his own son. The Bible Exposition Commentary um, adds these notes, so it's a, it's a separate one, but it even notes, Herod the Great, called king by the Roman Senate, was a cruel and crafty man who permitted no one not even his own family, to interfere with his rule or prevent him satisfying his evil desires. A ruthless murderer, he had his own wife and her two brothers slain because he suspected them of treason. He was married at least nine times in order to fulfill all of his lusts and to strengthen his own political ties. That's Herod. 
This is the guy who wants to kill Jesus. I did not know this. Herod was considered the king of the Jews already. Because the Roman Senate had called him king, and because he was in that area, he considered himself and others did too that he was the king of the Jews. So whenever he hears that the king has been born, and this is a long prophesied king of the Jews, now you begin to understand why he wants that death so suddenly. His reign in all of its totality is about to be upended. The only way to stop the rising of that king is to literally stop the rising of that king. Anything that got in his way, his own kids, his wives and their family, Everybody was expendable to Herod as long as Herod retained control. So he seeks to kill Jesus because he alone wants to be the king. And you know what? Yet the king comes and Herod dies. That's who this king Herod is. Cast of characters number three, the priests. Look at verse four. And I, I, this one's easy to miss. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written. Okay, don't miss this because to me this is where a lot of it all comes together and then we, we move out of our cast of characters. Herod hears that a king is born. The Magi come to him and say, we have seen a great star in the sky and we know that the king is born. We want to go worship him. So they know, and he knows, and he goes to the priest, and the priests know. Whenever he asks them, the chief priests and the scribes, whenever this evil king asks the religious leaders of the Jews where he's born, they know. And they don't go. Like, I miss that. These are the religious leaders of the day. They know the prophecy. The Magi show up and say, the long prophesied king, the king of the Jews, the king has been born. We're going to worship him. They tell Herod. Herod looks at all the religious leaders, the chief um, scribes and, and his leaders, and he says, where? Where would he be born? And they say, oh, over in Bethlehem, because here's what all the prophecies say. And so it's believable enough that Herod then tells the wise men, okay, go to Bethlehem, and whenever you find him, let me know so that I can come and worship too. And we never get any indication at all that the chief priests and scribes, and none of them ever go. And here's what I didn't know. Bethlehem's only five miles away. And they never go. So at the birth of Christ, let me, let me stop there. Let me just kind of hit a pause for a pastoral moment. If we're not careful, then we can be much like the priests. We can have all the knowledge of who He is, know of Jesus, but not seeking Him. Not going to worship Him, but wanting Him to come to us. And that is the failure of these fallen priests. Jesus, we're over here. You're the long-awaited King. Come this way instead of going in worship. So all of it comes down to this. Jesus Christ was born in a manger. And this King was sought by the Gentiles, hated by the King, and ignored by the priests. Like, can we like just let that kind of wrap around all the humility of Christ and that He took whenever He was born? That He would be born already rejected and despised. I'm thinking of Isaiah. He was a man of many sorrows, despised and rejected. He had no majesty that we would look on Him. And He's born into this manger, already rejected and despised, and already, though, drawing genuine believers to His side. Like, all of this is going on in this very, very familiar story. All these pieces culminating. 
And here's what I wrote, because I didn't want to miss this, even for me, like as I'm studying and as I'm singing, um, come be all the wondrous mystery. It's all like, this really is such a sweet and humble and heartbreaking scene when you really grasp it. The immortal, eternal, wonderful Jesus was born in a manger, sawed by the Gentiles He drew, hated by the king, and rejected by the priests. Matthew chapter 2. Some profound things that really started to sink in as I'm like dwelling in this passage this week. And they're, they're cross-referenced. There are other passages for us. I want us to look at, um, gosh, I got three passages here. Let's go to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. God's Word says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, now it's referring to Jesus, He was in the beginning with God before all things. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, as in John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. That is Jesus Christ. The true light, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's what we see in Matthew chapter 2. He is here. Go to Isaiah chapter 42. I had several, I, I, I deleted some of these other passages because, man, you, you, you just keep going. But this one and the next one, I, I couldn't not include. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah prophesies, and, and Peter tells us that no man prophesies of his own will, but only as he is moved by the Spirit. And so here's what Isaiah writes. Through the Spirit, he says, Behold, this is God speaking through Isaiah. Behold my servant, which is a common phrase in prophetic language of Jesus Christ. He is the servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Like, see that manger, y'all? I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So, like, 
here, the Magi come, and like this is the one to whom they come. Matthew chapter 21. bringing some Easter here into the Christmas, and it's not even either one of them. Here we go, Matthew 21. As I'm reading about the coming of the King in Matthew 2, I am thinking of this in Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now go to verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What a ridiculous coming of a king, is what the world said. The king of all creation, born into a manger. The darkness trembled and was no doubt saying, what a ridiculous coming of a king. And yet, he has shifted all of eternity. Like so, as I read about him coming as a king in the cradle and then coming as a king here on the road, I just think what a humble and great king we have. He's worthy of all worship. He's worthy of our gold and our frankincense and myrrh. He's worthy of our pursuit. He's worthy of our seeking Him. He's worthy of us falling down and worshiping Him. And yet He is a baby in a cradle. And one day He will grow up and He will bear the stripes by which you and I sit here today. He will be pierced one day for our transgressions in that timeline. For a conclusion, I just want to point you to this. I want to make note that all throughout the passages that we see there was faithfulness from God for God and His glory. Like He was faithful. Like you see it to fulfill this prophecy, to fulfill this prophecy, to fulfill this prophecy, to fulfill this prophecy. Whenever there's any danger, then God's angels give Joseph, he has four dreams in this passage. I don't know if you caught that. So you look at the dreams and you look at the, the prophecies that are being fulfilled, which I think are absolutely worthy of studying and talking about, but I think that we can go into rabbit trails with those two and totally miss that here is the king being born into our world. So all of those things show us that God is absolutely faithful. And if you're like, well, what does that one mean? Then, then we can talk. Absolutely. But I want you to get this, that the numerous prophecies that we see fulfilled are prophecies that show how faithful God the Father truly is, what He said He would do and He has done. That's what I think we need 
right now. What he said he would do, he did it, and it is done. His faithfulness to himself and to his word is our greatest confidence right now as we even meet here today. What hope have we for tomorrow except that our God is with us? How do we know he's with us? Because he came for us. He became one like us. And he is one who has put one like himself within us so that the Holy Spirit is within us. And we are sealed, it says in scripture, for that day whenever we will see him face to face. And it all begins for us in that cradle. And I just rush past it in the Christmas season. There's one prophecy I want to take you all the way back to as we wind it all up. Okay? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to close it in prayer. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. It's what's called the the Proto-Evangelicum. It's the, the first evangelistic message. And it's preached by God. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, the, the, the sin has occurred. God is laying out the curses, and in verse 14, says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, which is Jesus. Like in your Bible, whenever it says her offspring, like you can write Jesus because that's who it is. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head. That is, he will crush you. He will destroy you. And you shall bruise his heel. That is, you won't destroy him. In the beginning, God promised a redeemer. That's what we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In the beginning, God promised a redeemer. And now in Matthew, the redeemer comes. And we're about to read his life. The coming king came so that he may rescue us from darkness and save us unto his side. He was born because God sent his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He was born and oh so humbly. He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Lord God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, thank you. Like the Trinitarian God that we can't wrap our mind around, thank you. That in the beginning you were there, all in your fullness. And in this moment, you are here in all your fullness. And one day we will be with you in all your fullness. But Lord, we are redeemed because you saved us. And you saved us at great cost to you. Lord, would you teach me what it means to be humbled by your birth yet again? Lord, be with us and teach us what it means to walk in obedience and adoration of the true King who came for us. Amen.